Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's edition of Health Matters. Well, on the show this evening, I'll be talking with David Greer, Managing Trustee of the Sipla Foundation, about the launch of South Africa's first fully serviced primary healthcare modular medical clinic, as well as about his 1,500-kilometer run in Cuba to raise money for the Sipla Foundation's Miles for Smiles initiative. Professor Ben-Erik van Weck will be on the line, and he's a professor of botany at the University of Johannesburg, and we'll be chatting about his latest book, Culinary Herbs and Spices of the World. It's a fabulous book. I suggest you go out and get yourself one of those. Peter Loebscher is the executive director of the Leprosy Mission of South Africa, and we'll be talking about leprosy, something that I'm sure a lot of us thought had long since disappeared. And by the way, Leprosy Day, World Leprosy Day, was marked this past Sunday, the 26th of January. And then I'll be chatting with Susan Stringer, Flora Marketing Director, about the exciting Flora 21-Day Cholesterol Challenge, which is currently on the go in Villiersdorp in the Western Cape. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. As I mentioned earlier, David Greer is the managing trustee of the Sipla Foundation and he's joined us on the show before and he always seems to be literally running off somewhere. And now he's recently returned from a 1,500-kilometer run through Cuba to raise money for the Sipla Foundation's Miles for Smiles initiative. So he's on the line now to chat to us about this, but he's also going to tell us about the launch of Awetu, South Africa's first fully serviced primary healthcare modular medical clinic. David, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Before we get on to the before we get on to the run, let's talk about Awetu. It's, it's this is an amazing initiative. As I mentioned, it's South Africa's first fully serviced modular medical clinic, and this literally is in modules, in pods almost that you can move around as the need arises. Yes, the, the clinic's designed around five modular pods. The, the main sort of anchor pod is is the, the medical center. It's got a a fully um, equipped dental surgery. Then next to that is, is uh, nursing sisters' um, uh, rooms, and that's connected to a little medicine room. Then we've got the doctor's rooms. But the second pod consists of a little trauma center and sick bay, which has a laundry and an ablution facility. And then the next pod we use for wellness and healthcare training modules that we groups of the community to come in and, and um, they're given lectures in the evenings or mornings uh, about various aspects of, of healthcare. And then we've also got a rural oncology unit, which has its own um, little lab and uh, laminar flow cabinets where chemo can be mixed. And um, then four treatment chairs with uh, sick bay and, you know, everything that's needed with that. So, so that's sort of in a nutshell what the... The primary healthcare modular clinic consists of. So it's pretty multifunctional. I mean, you can do a lot of things with this. Yes, and, and the other thing is we have quite a, 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 a well, an excellent management system that the whole clinic runs on. It's got all the proper protocol protocols and, and steps for treatment in it, and every single patient's record is, is is kept. And if we have to refer a patient from our little uh, clinic a secondary facility like a, a, a day hospital or a hospital, transfer the file across, plus give the patient a hard copy, and then the doctor on the other end knows exactly um, who's coming, why, and, 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 and what the perceived ailment is. So it, it helps with that. And, and as well as this, we also act as a hub where our catchment of patients, and a, a unit can, can service up to 5,000 patients, 
we say on chronic medications in the stake, and that the stake can then issue the chronic med- medication to our CMP nursing sister, and then she can dispense that to the patients on chronic med- medication in, in, in our catchment area. So that also helps alleviate the pressure on other uh, state clinics that might be overburdened. So the aim of this is, is, is to help the delivery of primary health care wherever we can and act as, as a um, filter system to in rural areas where, where clinics are overloaded as well as enhance the services that are out there already. So it's very much a support service to the existing medical services in the country. Correct, yes. And initially, your first one, the first one launched in this month, actually, and you, it's on a wine farm, in, on Valera Wine Farm in the Western Cape. And I mean, the, the, there's a number, I would imagine, hundreds of farm workers who are going to be very grateful. They don't have to go for miles and stand in queues for days to get some attention, some health attention. Yes, this, this first unit serves 15 farms. On those 15 farms, there are roughly 2,000 farm workers and families, and then 700 children. Uh, that are in the little ECD clinics. And we've partnered with the Pebbles Foundation who work on all those farms, and they, they were giving sort of basic primary health care assistance to the farm workers. So we've now delivered a state-of-the-art facility to enhance what they're doing and give them a, um, a really well-equipped hub for, to upgrade their, their, their level of delivery of primary health care to those farm workers and their, and their children. So this is the first one, and uh, the, the main... Aim, I would imagine, is to roll this out nationally eventually. Yes, the, the, the next one we, we're rolling out with earmark for um, the KZN area. We've partnered with a foundation up there. Then we're looking at uh, the East Rand and Eastern Cape. So we're slowly going to deploy units in, in each province. Because you know, everywhere operates differently until we, we find out the best model for each area and then we can duplicate them as, as the models roll out. But the one in the Western Cape will be the anchor one where all our training is done and over the next five, six months all, all the, the testing will be done there and checking that the systems are properly integrated and the unit really works well. And then as we perfect that, so we'll roll out in the different areas. And I'm assuming you're looking for corporate sponsorship across the country for you to roll out the rest because these things don't come cheaply. Yes, you, you know, that, that's the ultimate success of this. Two ways that a corporate can get involved. They can either help onto the infrastructure, and that then becomes a corporate CSI node where they can then um, put funds in in the future and, and you know, keep building on, on the unit. We can start off with one pot and, and, and build it up as the, the need arises. And the second way, um, corporate can then either fund the salaries of the nursing practitioners that work there or the oral hygienist that runs the dental unit. So those are the two sort of main ways that we're looking to partner with corporates and um, then as well, we look at people in the medical field um, offering community service time as part of their CSI initiatives from their practices. And we also, in the future, want to be accredited for um, students that go out and have to do a year's community service. So we can use nurses, dentists, doctors, they can all do community service in these units. So there, there are a lot of ways that, that we, we see this enhancing the community for people to get involved in the communities. So this one, the initial one, was 
funded or sponsored, if you like, by the Sipla Foundation, but they do so many other things. I mean, one of the things that they're very involved with, and we have spoken about this on the show before, is the Miles for Smiles initiative, which I think is the most fabulous thing. And you actually went, you, this is why you tend to run all over the world. I mean, you, you, you're running all over the place. And I think I, I was reading something that you actually, so far, all your adventures so far, have actually enabled 1,800 children to receive corrective facial surgery. I mean, that's incredible, David. You must be very proud of yourself. Oh, this initiative has, has been incredible. And, and you know, it's, it's not only me. I'm sort of one of the adventurers. There are quite a few guys. And, and as this this initiative has grown, so more, more people have joined. And, um, yeah, we, we've, we've raised enough funds to put 1,800 kids through surgery. I mean, I've got two guys that are now going to swim from Africa to Madagascar across the channel. It's oh 500 goodness. k's. Yeah, I, I paddled that. It was hard enough. These two friends of mine are going to swim it, also for miles to smile. So, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I, myself and my running partner, Andrew Stewart, we, we just did Cuba. And uh, it, it was an eventful trip. The running was easy. <laughs> Staying out of the Cuban <laughs> um, hospitality uh, sort of jail mm. was the challenge. <laughs> yeah, to remain on the island was a challenge. Well, it was worth it in the end. I think you raised something like 250,000 rand for the initiative. So that's incredible. And what's... It's, it's actually over 300. I've just oh. come uh, from a presentation with the uh, Claremont uh, Rotary, and they just donated, in honor of one of their members, uh, 25,000 rand tonight. And wow. We had some liquid food, 70,000 rand. It, it's, so we, we over, we close to 400,000 now. Wow. So it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's astounding. The, the generosity and, and the caring nature that, that fellow South Africans have. And, you know, it, it just it inspires me every day. I always say on, on those days when I, I can't put one foot in front of the other, I just think, get up and do it. There's, there's someone out there that's supporting you, and it's always like that. You know, every step of the way, there's someone supporting us. So it makes it really worth it. And as you say, I'm so proud to be part of this. It's, it's actually an honor to be part of this, this whole setup. And just for people who aren't quite aware, this is for surgery for cleft palate and cl- the, the cleft palate and lip. And I was astounded to, to read that one in every 750 children in Africa is born with a cleft palate or a lip. And the saddest thing is that one in 10 babies born with the condition doesn't make it to their first birthday because of all the, the problems that they encounter because of the condition. Yes, it's, it's the biggest form of facial deformity. And as you say, one in 750 children are born like this. And... The, 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 the thing about this is sometimes if, if a child just has a cliff, look, it's an operation that's under an hour and you can change that child's life forever. But, you know, I've been on quite a few of these surgical missions and, and what really also is so inspiring is you, you, it's not only the child's life that you change, you reunite an ostracized family. So it's not only 1,800 children's lives you change, we've brought 1,800 families together. And I think, you know, so much what this country is about is, is, is bringing us all together and bringing these, these little families together that bring the big family together. And, and you know, that's for me. Every, every child is it's another family. It's another community. It's the country. And it's, it's, that's what builds the, the bridges. And, and, oh, it's inspiring. And it's across our borders, too. I mean, we uh, Operation Smile is up as far as the BRC. My daughter's actually in Kinshasa this evening. Uh, setting up for, for a mission there that, that Operation Smile is in, involved in. So, you know, we're building bridges across our borders as well, which is which is so needed to our neighbours. 
I remember speaking to you a good number of years ago about Operation Smile, and you said that having been on one of these medical missions that when they're doing all the operations, you said the best reward you think you could ever have got, and you got them, was when this child has had the operation and looks at you and smiles, and you said that was just enough for you. Yeah, uh, you know, and um, I was in, in Melsbrook just before I went to Cuba, and, you know, once again I saw that the Sinesicus hands this little girl back to her mom, and you see that parental bond rekindled between a mother and a child. I mean, it's just, even the hardest of surgeons sit there with tears in their eyes and they just see what they've achieved. And, you know, they're good people out there. And, and these guys give up hours and hours and hours a year of free time just to make this difference. And, you know, I always say, you sit there and you watch them weaving magic. It's just so, so special. Uh, it's hard to describe once you come off from one of those surgical missions and then you see actually what, what's going on out there. And, uh, you know, we've got to look at all these things and just appreciate what's good going on and what, what the bad stuff of this life. Appreciate the good side of, of what's going on there. And I think we're uh, on a good road. Life is good, David. Life is very good. Uh, and it's very rewarding what you do. And uh, thank you very much indeed for sharing that with our listeners this evening. Thank you so much for your time. It's only a pleasure, and thank you, and thanks for the opportunity. And, yeah, let's, let's smile on for the rest of the year. Thanks so much. And we look forward to chatting with you again when you do your next adventure. I'm sure it won't be too yeah, long I, before you're off somewhere else. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, I, I, need a, I need to, to sit and, and internalize what happened to me, and then, <laughs> then I'll think about it. <laughs> we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much, David. Good night. David Greer is the managing trustee of the Sipla Foundation, and if you'd like to contribute to the Miles for Smiles initiative, you can go to www.milesforsmiles.co.za and click on the red Donate button at the top of the page. For more information on Owetu, you can take a look at www.owetu.co.za, and that's O-W-E-T-H-U, owetu.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Professor Ben-Erik van Veek is a professor of botany at the University of Johannesburg and his latest book, Culinary Herbs and Spices of the World, is part of a series of books which include medicinal plants of the world and food plants of the world. And he joins me now. Prof, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Gordon. Thank you. I have to tell you, this book, um, it's sort of, I lost a whole entire weekend just <laughs> going through this book. I thought, oh, well, it's all just lists of herbs and spices, but it isn't. It's the story. I mean, the, the history of herbs and spices is absolutely fascinating, and it's all in here. Yes, that was indeed quite an adventure for me, an intellectual adventure to discover all the intricacies of, you know, the, the cultural relationships with these herbs and spices and what especially struck me was the the similarities between diverse cultures. You know, they, the same principles are used in different cultures of the world to create taste and flavors. The one thing I found very telling in, in, part of the, in the beginning part, before you get to the beautiful pictures and all the explanation of the herbs and spices, one of the things you said there was that spices were the driving force that changed and opened up the world. And you didn't quite realize how, how that, what that meant until I was reading the, in the beginning part of this book. And it does. It actually made an enormous difference to the way we live and who we are and what we eat these days. Yes, well, the reason why I'm talking to you tonight is because my forefathers came from Holland in something around the 1660s uh, with, to, to start a halfway station on the way to, to the East Indies to where they had the spice monopoly. So, so even 
the reason for me being here is because of spices. <laughs> the one thing I found quite sad was you talk about how some of the local spices were lost because people were using specific things and then suddenly all these guys were sort of sailing around the world bringing other spices and the traditional spices that were being used in certain places were then superseded by the new things coming in. Yes. Uh, you know, I think that is part of culture, human culture. You know, languages die out and habits and traditions also are replaced I guess that's part of cultural evolution all over the world. But, but um, in many cases, these things have at least been recorded. And, and there's even sometimes comebacks of some of these rare, rare herbs and spices. Yeah, there's one, there's one spice, you, it, it comes, obviously comes up in your book quite often, is saffron. I mean, you have to sell your soul these days to be able to afford to buy that. It's always been very expensive, yes. And the reason, of course, is that it is only the stigmas of of these smaller leaf flowers, the, the, the relatives of iris. And so it takes an enormous amount of labor to get even a, a few grams of the stuff. So that, that is why it is so expensive. Now we use, I mean, everybody cooks with spices and herbs and all sorts of things. And I was fascinated to read, though, that half of our taste buds are lost to us before the age of 20. Yes, that we, is quite remarkable. That's, ridic- that's ridiculous. I mean, how are we still tasting things so nicely if we only got half? Imagine what we could taste if we still had all our taste buds after the age of 20. Yes, I think children uh, experience taste intensely and, and maybe too intense. And that is why beer and wine, for example, children generally do not like bitter tastes. It's too too bitter for them. So I think... As we get older, now taste buds get fewer and fewer, our, our taste also change. We, we, we start enjoying, uh, you know, stronger tastes and better tastes and so on. That's an interesting thing you're talking about taste now, because in the last number of not that long ago, suddenly we've developed taste number five. We've only known sweet and salty and sour and bitter. And then there's been this huge upsurge of interest in something called umami, which is a sort of a savory taste. Yes, yes, that's quite interesting because it was first discovered way back in 1908 by a Japanese scientist who called it umami. It's, it's based on Japanese words for, for good feel in the mouth or something like that. And um, it was only many years later, in 1985, that science actually acknowledged the existence of this extra taste when the taste receptors were discovered that, that's responsible for actually tasting these uh, amino acids. So, so once again, you know, um, science ran behind. We always think science is ahead of everything, but sometimes science comes later. Um, the Chinese, of course, they have actually seven tastes. What do they traditionally... Was that the astringent and the pungent is, are the other two, are there? Is that right? Yes, pungent. It's actually the, the pain taste of, of chili. The, the, they consider oh. it to be a taste. It's actually uh. a pain. It's <laughs> not, a, <laughs> not taste. a taste. <laughs> and the other one is the interesting, what they call ma, or f- in English it would be fizz. It's a sort of a, a almost like you know, soda water type mm. of effect in the mouth. A chemical effect, of course. Um, the most famous plant for that is, is um, that Brazilian um, Spilantis. But the, the Chinese use um, Sichuan pepper to get that, that fizzy effect. On so purpose. there's all sorts of interesting um, relationships, you know, between uh, these different tastes. Uh, the flavors, the complexity is actually due to smells and not so much taste. And uh, 
95% of what we experience as taste is actually smell. I actually did a very interesting experiment actually a while ago because I don't like olives, for example. I, I just don't, it's a personal thing, I just don't like them. And I was speaking to a chef who said to me, block your nose, take your fingers and block your nose and put the olive in your mouth and eat it. And I did that. I couldn't taste the olive at all. Oh. And when I took my fingers off my nose, I got that horrible taste, in my view, horrible taste of the olive again. And I just found that so bizarre that we could actually, be, if you can't smell it, you can't taste it. Yes. And, and what's also interesting is that inhalation and exhalation produce different smells. So when the, when the, mouth is, when the food is in your mouth or in your stomach, the taste is different to when, it, when it's actually outside of your body and, and you're still assessing it. So that is also something that's quite interesting. The inhalation and exhalation gives different smells and hence different tastes. This whole food eating food thing is getting more and more complicated now as we're talking along here. But I could get like lose a lot of weight if I had to think about how much what I was eating all the time and where the smell was coming from or going to. I wouldn't get around to eating anything. So <laughs> it's quite, no, quite a good sometimes thing. Sometimes interesting to know a little bit mm. more, you know. Um, I think Absolutely. so many books on herbs and spices tend to be rather superficial, you know, or, or just, you know, not, not really. Well, it's mainly what, how much of it to put in the food and this and yes. that. Whereas this was an attempt to explain it all, to, to yeah, to to excite the intellectual taste buds a little bit as well. Well, you know? it, it was it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the, uh, there was even a section on spice mixtures, mixtures, which I found absolutely amazing. And you you sort of the nice thing about it was because often you go into a spice shop or you'll see a recipe and it'll say something, and you won't have a clue what they're talking about. If you have this book, you'll know everything. Yes, I think that was the idea, to quickly look up what mm. is meant by masala or this yes. and that and so forth. Yeah. And you explain exactly what's in everything, all the different spice mixtures. You've got all the things on, on sort of um, culinary herbs. You've got the salad herbs. I mean, that I find absolutely amazing. Um, it, and it's it's very detailed and beautiful pictures. I mean, you've got, that's just, all. this is all we're talking for you listening now. This is all just in the beginning of the book. You haven't even got into the main part of the book yet. The main part of the book has all these beautiful pictures alphabetically of all the herbs and spices and the explanations about where they come from and the descriptions of them. And it's absolutely, this must have taken you forever to put this together. Well, actually, the writing took less than a year. But, but, really? But, I mean, the... the Collecting of photographs mm. and and the knowledge. I mean, I've I've been interested in this topic for a long time. So, so it was all hidden somewhere in my brain. And uh, over many years, I've sometimes grown some of the plants to get photos and so on. So, it happened over several years. But the the main writing happened in a very short period. Actually, probably less than half a year. Actually. It's actually incredible. I mean, there was, there was something in here that I didn't realize was a herb or a spice. was something, mango, for example. You've got that in here. But they use that to make chutneys and what they call blatyang, I think, was the Malaysian word for it initially. Yes, that's very much an Indian spice mm. and a very, very popular, one of the most popular of all Indian spices, dried man dried green mango. Oh, really? Okay. The one thing I found very interesting, because I watch a lot of cooking shows and they're normally American and they're always going on and on about arugula I had no idea what arugula was until I got your book and discovered it's something I eat almost every day and it's rocket I mean I love rocket I didn't realize it was the same thing yes in the same way they call for example uh, what the Indians call dania and we call coriander leaf they call cilantro so there are these terminologies and, and the book also gives the you know the different um, terms or the different languages or the different words used in different 
parts of the world to describe the same thing. Now, the dania thing I sort of figured out because I do a lot of cooking with coriander and a lot of the recipes I use, it says dania, and I figured that out a while ago. And do you so, like that, by the way? Because I you don't it. like olives. Do you like dania? I love it. I, I can eat coriander till it's coming out of my ears. I mean, obviously not a normal person. You know, I don't like olives, but I love dania or coriander. Yeah. Did you just think that dania, whether you like it or not, is actually genetically determined? And, oh, uh, really? And there are also uh, cultural differences between groups of people that uh, you either hate it or you love it. And, uh, and that's interesting. The, 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 that intense flavor compound is the same thing you find in stink, stink bugs. <laughs> but to me, coriander tastes like stink bugs. <laughs> no. Well, don't come and have dinner at my house because I cook with it a lot. I use I, a lot of coriander in my food that I cook. I'm, I'm getting used to it because my wife loves it. So oh, she really? often puts it in food. <laughs> I didn't realize, oh my goodness, so you say it's actually it's gen- genetically predisposed to what kinds of things you like to eat, what sort of herbs and spices. Yes, there was like. a whole master really? study on, in America on, on this taste preference, the genetics of the dania taste preference. Was that specifically that one? Yes. Good heavens. Okay, so I'm obviously genetically predisposed to enjoying coriander. So it must be something in my heritage somewhere yes. back in the day. So, because that's interesting. But this this book itself, I mean, you've, as I mentioned in the beginning, you've written medicinal plants of the world, food plants of the world. Now, this, what is next for you? Because you've pretty much covered everything, or have you? Yes, there's a few things still left to do. Um, I, I often, I don't like talking much about what's coming because may, it may not come. I may lose <laughs> interest or get diverted to something else. But uh, there's a few few more things. Um, I would like to make a a summary of um, medicinal and uh, sort of natural products, all the famous natural products of the world. That, that is the theme of the next book. Okay, so all the pl- they use it, plants it, to make all of that. So that's, that's going right, to yeah. be called uh, Phytomedicines, Herbal Drugs and Poisons of the World. So it will be a, a sort of a broad overview of all the famous medicines and, and herbs and spices, I mean uh, drugs and spices and, no, not spices, um, phytomedicines, in other words, plants, um, plant medicines mm. with proven, um, you know, pr- proven effects. Okay. Where, where, where the chemistry is known and the chemical compounds are known. So most of this would be linked to chemical compounds. In the case of the phytomedicines, the, the active ingredient. In the case of herbal drugs, the, the forensically important compound that police forensics can use to identify the things. And then poisons, you know, people don't realize it, but very often people are killed accidentally or, or, or otherwise by, by poisonous plants. And then it, it's a forensic interest to know what the actual poisonous compounds are, how can, I, how can you identify the plant, and so on. So it's sort of a, a broad overview of, of, let's say, socially relevant plant chemi- chemistry, that type of Gosh, idea. That sounds amazing. Um, what what was very interesting about this book, of course, it's it's um, produced by Q Publishers, which is a, a very famous brand name in in plants in yes, the world, the Q Gardens, and, and also yeah. University of Chicago Press. So that was a new adventure for me, and I was really very impressed with the anonymous reviewers at Q, who suggested a whole lot of interesting things and also made a, a, quite a lot of corrections to my chemical structures and things so i would be i'm very grateful to to the the professionalism of of q publishers 
Gosh, well, it, it seems that you've got a lot more to, to share with us, Prof. Um, I look forward to the next one. Yes, there's actually a whole line of books, <laughs> but I don't want to reveal them now. Oh, well, I can't it, wait. Um, there's some South African themes that I would like to explore further and then a few more international ones. The thing I like about your books, Prof, is that it could potentially be a very academic publication but the way you do them you make it very accessible for people like me who don't have an an academic background in this sort of field but yet I can fully understand and enjoy what you are producing here. I I, I so greatly appreciate what you are saying to me because that is exactly what I attempt to do. I always think that people tend to underestimate the general public you know to so I would rather pitch it above someone than below and 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 the whole idea for me is to is to make complicated things accessible to try and explain what seems to be complicated things in an easy and a user friendly way so i'm I'm really happy that you picked that up because that is exactly what I've been aiming all my life with my books is to is to make it serious but hopefully intellectually stimulating well, it, well, and entertaining for as everyone. I, as I said, I lost a weekend with this book. <laughs> I can see that from your questions. It's clear to me that that this is not just a superficial interview. No, You've actually read As I said, I lost the weekend because the I'll start, oh, well, I'll just skim through the front and I kind of, like a day later, I'm sort of still glued to the book thinking, I don't know why I'm stuck reading this book, but it was fascinating. I learned so much in the beginning, as the beginning parts of the book, the history and the cultivation and the harvesting of all these things and where they were coming from. And, and I literally, I mean, you kind of think you know a bit until you read this and then it kind of fills in all the gaps. And it was wonderful. I really must congratulate you on an excellent, excellent book. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And as I said, I'm looking very forward to the next one. So we'll wait and see when that comes out. Yes, that should be end of the end of this year. So. Oh, well, I look forward to that. Thank you so much, and thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. And good luck with the book. It's been a great pleasure, especially because you, I can see that you really understand what what I try to do. So thank you for that. It's only my greatest pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Prof, and have a good evening. You too. Thank Chat you. again. Thank you. Good night to you. Good night. Professor Ben Eric van Veek's latest book is titled Culinary Herbs and Spices of the World. And you might have picked up through the interview that I really enjoyed the book and I can highly, highly recommend it. It is really fascinating and I'm sure you will absolutely love reading it. It's published here by Breezer and it's available in all good bookstores. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, this past Sunday was World Leprosy Day, and joining me on the line now is Peter Lopesha, and he's the Executive Director of the Leprosy Mission here in South Africa. Peter, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corrid, and thanks once again for having me on your program. Well, as I mentioned at the very, very beginning of the show, you know, leprosy, I mentioned World Leprosy Day this past Sunday, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are sitting there thinking, surely leprosy's gone? I mean, really, is it still here? Yes, that's a common uh, misconception about leprosy. We really wish it was something of the past. Sadly, well over 300,000 people every year get uh, leprosy for the first time. And, of course, there are many millions of people around the world who have had leprosy in the past and who are now disabled as a result of the disease. So what is the Leprosy Mission's mission here in South Africa? Do we have large numbers of people in South Africa still contracting leprosy? Uh, We've got two uh, strands to our work in South Africa. One is to provide care for people with leprosy in South Africa. Fortunately, that is a group of people who, uh, which is diminishing year by year. We find about 60 to 70 new patients each year in South Africa. Of course, there are several thousand people who've previously had leprosy and who still require help with uh, preventing disabilities and so on. 
The other part of our work in South Africa is to raise funding and find uh, potential workers for the leprosy mission in other parts of the world. And in particular, we're funding and supporting work in Mozambique, where leprosy is still quite a serious problem, particularly in the north of the country. Gosh, what actually causes leprosy? Leprosy is caused by a germ, very similar to the germ which causes tuberculosis. In the case of leprosy, the nerves are affected, and as a result of that, people lose feeling in their hands, feet, and eyes. And it's that loss of sensation, that loss of protective sensation, which causes people to injure their feet or burn their fingers or injure their eyes. And as a result of those unfelt injuries to lose their sight and lose the use of their hands, maybe even lead or could lead eventually to the amputation of a leg if the injuries become bad enough. Now, I think back in the day, people remember that there used to be leper colonies, basically, and people with leprosy almost used to be taken out of the general community and put far away because they were terrified of, of of it being contagious. How is it spread? I mean, is it something that you can catch effectively from somebody else? The good news about leprosy is it's a very difficult disease to catch. It is transmitted from one person to the other, but 95% of us are completely immune to the disease. So even if we were in repeated and prolonged contact with people with leprosy, we wouldn't develop the disease. The other good news about leprosy is that the treatment is very effective. And once someone with leprosy starts treatment, uh, they immediately become non-infectious. So there's no reason for leprosy patients to be isolated from the community. And that hasn't been the policy in South Africa for a very long time. Sadly, there are many parts of the world where that's not true. And people with leprosy are often banished from their communities or from their homes because people are very afraid of the disease. It's seen as a curse or uh, a sign that the person has fallen foul of sort of uh, heavenly realm, as it were, and uh, people with leprosy are often excluded because of that. But I should stress there's no medical reason for uh, people with leprosy to be isolated or treated separately separately from the rest of the community. You mentioned that about 95% of us are immune to this uh, this germ. Is, does that mean people are predisposed? Is it genetic? What is the, <clears throat> what is the cause then? South Africa, uh, the disease travels within families, and we know that in South Africa, if we find a new patient and we do a good job of examining family contacts of that patient, we're quite likely to find one or two other people in that family uh, also with leprosy. We're not quite sure why that is. A lot of research is still going on in that field to find out why some people are susceptible whilst the bulk of the population is not susceptible. But there's still a lot of mysteries about the transmission of leprosy that have yet to be answered. You mentioned that that leprosy can be successfully treated. How long does the treatment actually take? Treatment lasts between six months and two years. Some patients will need a little bit, uh, treatment lasting a little bit longer than two years. But in most patients, uh, treatment shouldn't need to last longer than two years. So it isn't a sort of a lifelong treatment thing. If it's caught, I would imagine early detection and early treatment is is the best thing. Early detection is uh, absolutely essential in leprosy, especially if one is going to prevent disabilities. Uh, nerve damage occurs, as I say, as a result of infection with the leprosy germ. And the earlier the treatment starts, uh, the less damage will occur. And, of course, there's also a chance of reversing the damage that has already taken place. If treatment starts later, unfortunately, the nerve damage can't be reversed. And sometimes that nerve damage is extensive and, and severe. And so the person will recover from leprosy. They will no longer have the active disease, but they will be left with paralyzed hands and problems with their feet. 
and will not be able to feel pain and will be at risk of becoming severely disabled later in life. So yes, early treatment is absolutely essential. Is there a specific age, if you are predisposed to getting this condition, is there a specific age possibly that it would suddenly flare up or occur, or is this something that would start in childhood? What is actually the that sort of, how would you find out age-wise that it would suddenly start? The odds to that question vary slightly from one part of the world to the other. There are some places in the world, especially some parts of Asia, where uh, leprosy occurs at a slightly younger age than it does, for example, in South Africa. We, again, we're not quite sure what the reasons for that are. Leprosy doesn't flare up by and large. It's a very slow incubating disease, and that's one of the problems with studying it. Uh, if someone is infected with leprosy today and develops the disease, they will probably only develop clinical signs of the disease two years later. And some people only develop uh, clinical signs of the disease 20 years after being infected. That obviously makes it quite difficult to work back to the point of infection and to understand just how the disease is being transmitted from one person to the other. So generally, young, very young people don't develop leprosy simply because even if they've been infected with the disease, the incubation period still needs to be worked through before they develop uh, active uh, leprosy or or leprosy which is visible to uh, someone examining them. Uh, uh, Sometimes we think uh, a health crisis uh, is something happening to the person that uh, uh, will affect their immune system may trigger the sudden appearance of leprosy and what we call a leprosy reaction. But by by and large, the onset is gradual and uh, fairly unobtrusive. And signs, what should they be looking out for? It varies again from person to person depending on how the immune system is responding to the leprosy germ. Many people will develop pale patches on the skin or discolored patches on the skin which are slightly numb. In other words, there's a slight loss of sensation in those patches. Uh, People with lowered resistance to the disease will develop extensive swelling in the ears, the eyebrows, the nose, and they will also develop nerve uh, infection in the nerves which will lead to slight paralysis in the hands particularly in the little fingers and then they will start noticing a slight loss of sensation in the palms of the hand maybe in the soles of the feet and they might have difficulty blinking their eyes or closing the eyes fully and so on and there are obviously a lot of uh, combinations of those various things so some people get patches and swelling some will just get swelling others will get a very much more um, difficult form of disease to detect which doesn't cause any swelling but which changes the uh, appearance of the skin to a slightly waxy shiny appearance. I think the thing that I want to stress is that leprosy is a very rare disease in South Africa. If people notice changes with their skin that they're concerned about please they shouldn't jump to any sort of uh, conclusions that it might be leprosy. But I think if people are concerned about changes to their skin, they should obviously consult their dermatologist and uh, allow him or her to do a, a thorough examination. But it's people who are close relatives of leprosy patients who should be on the greatest lookout for the early signs of leprosy. And that's part of our role in the leprosy mission is to teach relatives of leprosy patients how to recognize the early signs of what to do if they think they are developing leprosy. And the best news of all here is that if you know it is successful, it can be successfully treated. Absolutely, and the treatment is completely free of charge. The drugs are donated by Novartis, the drug manufacturer, to leprosy programs worldwide. So every single leprosy patient worldwide, and there, as I say, there are probably about three hundred thousand of them at the moment, is getting treatment free of charge thanks to the free donation of medication. 
So, and that's very important because leprosy normally affects the poorer members of the community, often people who are living in very impoverished conditions, particularly in Asia, uh, who would not be able to afford medication. And uh, we're incredibly grateful that we're able to provide treatment free of charge and have the joy of seeing people recover completely from leprosy and uh, all the after effects of the disease. Not to be rude, Peter, but one of these days I hope you don't have a job. Yes, we are working ourselves <laughs> out of a job. And I have to stress that it's taken place in many parts of the world already. Uh, there, there are numerous countries where leprosy has declined tremendously in the past uh, few decades. Uh, in many countries, partly because, of course, the availability of treatments, and then secondly, because uh, the standard of living in many countries has improved greatly in the past two or three decades. And leprosy has declined as a result of that. And in many countries where the leprosy mission used to be very active, we've either pulled out altogether or have downscaled our activities greatly. And uh, yes, we certainly hope that we'll be able to say that of uh, countries like uh, India, where at the moment uh, we're very active because of the very high prevalence of the disease. Well, Peter, you've enlightened us very well this evening. Thank you so much. And as I said, hopefully, don't wish this on you, but hopefully one day there won't be a need for the leprosy mission because you would have concluded your work so successfully here. But thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for the pleasure of being on your program. Thank you, Peter. Good night to you. Peter Lerpscher is the Executive Director of the Leprosy Mission here in South Africa. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.leprosymission.co.za or you can call them on 11 440 Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, rather exciting news. We are just about to start, or actually just started, the Flora 21-Day Cholesterol Challenge. It's rather unique. It's talking about real people, real results. And joining us on the show this evening is Susan Stringer, and she's the marketing director for Flora, the Flora marketing director. Susan, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Nice to be on the show. So tell me about this Flora 21-Day Cholesterol Challenge. What and where are you doing what? Okay, well, there's a lot to tell. Essentially, um, we have a, there's a product called Flora Proactive, which contains plant sterols. And um, we have done extensive work globally with uh, clinical trials and, um, and testing amongst uh, consumers. And we have seen that um, the confirmed results, the, the scientifically proven result, is that we, uh, by eating 25 grams of Flora Proactive a day, which equates to two grams of sterols a day, you are guaranteed to reduce your cholesterol by between 10 and 15%. So this is really exciting news for us, and we want to get that message out there. So what this campaign is about um, is we've gone into a town, and that town is Fleersdorp in the Western Cape, a little quaint, well-organized, beautiful town, and we are going to lower the cholesterol of the whole town. Oh, that's, that's our objective. That's amazing. So, but the thing is, I mean, people listening to this now are thinking, oh, fine, I'll just go and get some Flora Proactive, have 25 grams a day, and that's fine. But it, that's not it. That's part of a bigger solution. That's certainly part of a bigger solution. And, um, you know, uh, cholesterol is one of the key risk factors in cardiovascular disease, and we know that cardiovascular disease is the, is the number two um, cause of death in South Africa after HIV and AIDS and the biggest killer globally. The thing that's the tragedy is that CBD is 
is a lifestyle disease, and 80% of the time we can do something about it to prevent that death. So diet is one of the things. Flora Proactive plays a role in that um, within a balanced diet. So it's not only about taking the proactive, although that would work for, um, if you wanted to, but it is also about adjusting your intake, cooking differently, including more nuts and good oils, taking out some of the bad oils, and then, of course, exercise as well. So a moderate amount of exercise, uh, half an hour, three times a week, is going to make a significant difference to your risk profile, both in cholesterol and in um, blood pressure, both of which are key factors. So over 21 days in Villiersdorp, what will you be doing? What are, what are you going to be showing the people there? What are you going to be teaching them, helping them with? What is actually the plan? Well, we've, we've gone in and tested as many people as wanted to be tested. A few hundred have signed up onto the challenge, and they have committed to the 21-day challenge. Of course, all of them have been provided with Flora Proactive and have committed to including that in their diet. But we're also going to bring in, um, we're getting Vicky De Beer in on three Saturdays to give three cooking cooking classes on how to cook in a heart-healthy way and how to incorporate the Flora Proactive into your, into your eating plan. So she'll come in for, and do cooking classes. Then we're running exercise classes every day of the week. Uh, we have a walk around town every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, morning and evening. Such a beautiful town, gorgeous trees, no traffic. Early in the morning and in the evening we'll be walking. Bring your granny, bring your pram, bring the puppies, and the town will all get together to walk and raise their heart rate. And then we're running some fitness classes as well, just introducing people to different forms of fitness. Another really exciting thing that we're going to do so that people aren't too alarmed by the need to do exercise to reduce their risk and improve their health is we're having a socky evening. What, that's one of the things we've got planned because um, just getting up and dancing and moving your body, even if it's for fun, is good for your heart. So that's another thing we're doing. And also, um, everyone has access to a registered dietitian. We'll be bringing dietitians in to give a proper professional consultation, the same way as if you were to go to her rooms. Um, to really help with a tailored specific diet which meets your needs, your likes, your dislikes, if you've got other, other issues in terms of dietary requirements. So we're really providing the full, you know, floor is going in there. We're going to own the town for, for 21 days. No one can escape it and, and important to support people. So the people on the program, the people who are cooking for the people on the program and ensure that they get all the encouragement they need to, to take this big dramatic step in lowering their career cholesterol in just 21 days. I think one of the problems, though, that people have when they get all healthy and, and then after you've left, after 21 days, it's a case of having to go off to the shop and mm. you have to know what to buy. That is the other thing. You need to know how to read a label. You need to know what it is you're looking for. Are you bringing in anyone to help them with that? Absolutely. So so our, um, we're working with a, a diet, this registered dietitian and actually during the cooking classes, she'll be explaining how to select things in stores, how to read nutritional labels, how to tell the difference between a good, what's a good fat, what's a bad fat. There's a whole lot of myths um, associated with that. So we'll be doing that. And then what we're doing is we're filming the whole thing. So for 21 days, um, there'll be a film crew in there and we'll be making videos which will become available um, on our Facebook page and on the Flora website, Flora Strong Heart. And we will, those are things that we can use going into the future to keep people inspired and educated and, and remind them of the right way to do things. Because it is a complete lifestyle change. It's a lifestyle disease. So it requires a lifestyle change and, and some new habits to be created. And we're hoping that the things that we put in place, for example, this walk around town, we hope that the town 
continues with that um, after we've left and and finds a leader and finds someone who, who gets them organized and keeps people moving and keeps people active. Well, over the course of the next couple of weeks on the show, we're going to be talking to some of those participants just to find out how they're doing and how difficult it might have been to start and how much easier it gets as you go along. So Yeah, I can't be... wait to hear <laughs> the stories. I think it's going to be fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it too because I think people are a little bit apprehensive. They think, oh gosh, mm. well, actually it's not going to be that bad. It's only 21 days, but mm. it's the fact that you're trying to change the way they live. It's the lifestyle change. It's not, well, we only have to be healthy for 21 days. This should be something, or most of it should be carried forward after that. Absolutely. I mean, you can't um, do the 21 days and then and then go back to back to the old ways. It is something where you would need to continue to um, use the, the flora proactive sort of indefinitely and and obviously keep up that level of keep up that level of exercise but then you avoid the side effects that come with taking statins and taking medications sometimes people do need that we never say never but really if you can avoid taking medication for the rest of your life by just changing a few habits and adapting how you cook and what you eat and incorporating something into your diet every day certainly that's something I would prepare I would prefer to do is to do something like that rather than pop the pill, even though that is much easier. Where did this idea come from and are you going to be doing it anywhere else? It is actually an idea that's been done in other parts of the world. So up until the end of last year, it's been done in Greece where they actually took over a little island and the, uh, in Spain and then in Australia. So those are the three countries that have done it successfully. And then there'll be there's several countries doing it at the moment around the world where we have a strong flora business. Germany, the UK um, are two that I know for sure are doing it. But I think we, we're doing it live. Uh, so people are joining the journey with us using social media, etc. So we're quite excited. We've really been brave in terms of um, going out there and committing to delivering this result. And on, on the 14th of, of February, we'll know what the number is. And again, will this something you'd, you'd do again? Absolutely, I think, um, and it's something also that we we want to um, because it's, it spreads the word around in that specific community. But it also gives us an opportunity to talk about different contexts and different people. You know, the campaign is called Real People, Real Results, and that's really what we want to see: is people just like your listeners, just like people who are listening to the show tonight, who are saying, "Oh, I just dreaded having to change things," but then they're inspired by these stories and they. They're inspired by um, by the benefit of living a longer life and living a healthier life without that stress and and concern and anxiety about your the state of your health. And so, yeah, it's something that we'll keep doing um, if it works, if people engage with it, and it's something that works to drive um, drive people to a new lifestyle. And once you enter it, after I mean, twenty one days is a good start, and people would possibly have got into a sort of a habit by then. It's mm-hmm. not going to be that difficult, really, to continue. It shouldn't be. I think especially, Corin, because they'll see the results. Mm. So I think that that is um, there's something else we, we say in marketing, which is seeing is believing. So I think if people see the number at the beginning and the number at the end and the number at the end is lower, they're going to be, you know, the evidence is there for them. And obviously we will encourage them to just continue with that way of living and continue with that diet. And there's no reason why the number shouldn't go down further or certainly stay at, the, at that lower number um, in the safe region under 5 millimoles per litre. 
It's. I just think it's 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 an amazing project that you're taking on here, but it also sounds like a whole lot of fun. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. The people there, I think, are going to have a whole lot of fun, sort of almost competing with each other. That's a nice thing about having such a large group of people. It's not going to be you and me and the next door neighbour. It's the town. You know, it's fun. It's going to be fun more than anything else. And that's exactly the idea behind this thing. When we say we're going to take over a village and lower the cholesterol of the whole village, and Felizdorf's a tiny little village. It's about ten thousand people live. Um, I've spent a lot of time there. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone has two or three jobs or two or three profiles in the in the in the town. And I'm pretty sure everyone knows who's on the challenge. And when they see them in the in the street or in the post office or wherever, it'll be, hey, how's your challenge going? Keep it up. Can't wait to see your number. So I think this community concept, mm. either whether it's a, a marketing campaign and a or, or a genuine initiative within a community, it's exactly people need support when they when they're going through something new. So it is fun. I mean, the walks in the morning and the um, bring the kids before school or push the pram. The the classes are going to be fun. The silky evening cooking classes. It's it's really going to be lovely. So I'm very excited about the next few weeks. It also sort of engenders a a really good community spirit as well, which I think is 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 always good. I mean, you know, any opportunity to do that is great. So this is something Absolutely. else you're going to be getting out of that um susan if people wanted to follow you mentioned that you could follow them live how, what is the how do they do that well um we've got we've got a facebook a facebook page which is flora strong heart and that'll be keeping people up to date literally daily and you'll be able to follow what's going on there and follow links through to the videos that we make and and the progress of the people um, and the people on the on the challenge. Um, we have a website as well, which is also www.florastrongheart.coza, um, which is obviously not as real time, but we will be posting after the after the challenge. We'll post all the videos, and people can access those and the recipes and 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 follow the people. So you know, just watch out in the in the media, watch out in social media. Um, I'm sure there'll be bloggers following us. I'm sure there'll be there'll be all sorts of things going on in the media where hopefully people are, are gripped by this, this um, initiative and um, people get behind the, the town of Villiersdorp to help them lower their cholesterol. Well, well done to all of you for, for doing this, for putting this in place here in South Africa. It sounds like it's going to be, besides being a healthy initiative, a whole lot of fun to do. So, and, But Susan, we'll catch up with you again. As I mentioned, we'll be speaking to some of the participants over the next couple yep. of weeks, but we'll catch up with you at the end of the challenge and see how it's all gone. So I look forward to that. I can't wait. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. Only a pleasure. Speak to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. I was chatting there with Flora Marketing Director Susan Stringer about the Flora 21-Day Cholesterol Challenge. Now, if you'd like to find out exactly what's going on and how it's going, you can literally in real time, she said, on Facebook, it's Flora Strong Heart. They also have a website where there'll be lots of information. You'll also be able to eventually get all the recipes and all sorts of things there, and that's www.florastrongheart.co.za. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM. And next week, it will be the Disability Report. So join me for that.